Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Namaste, Welcome to Namaste, Motherfuckers the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and today's episode is called Fight, Flight and Feminism. My guest today was hailed as one of the new suffragettes in Vogue magazine. It was actually the Daily Mail where the word suffragette was first used back in 1906. And in the 1908 board game, Suffragetto, You could play as either the suffragettes or as the police. The aim of the suffragettes was to break into the House of Commons. The aim of the police was to break into the Albert Hall. Where else? And disrupt a suffragette meeting. Sounds a bit shit, but I bet it didn't drag on as long as Monopoly. Over 100 years later, in 2017, the United States Senate voted to require Senator Elizabeth Warren to stop speaking during the confirmation of Senator Jeff Sessions as US Attorney General. This gave birth to the feminist mantra, nevertheless, she persisted. There are some brilliant t-shirts with that written on the front. I even thought about buying one, thought it might make me look fat. It's irony, motherfuckers, calm down. I have shut myself away in a little bedroom at the top of the house. Is the, is the sound okay and not too echoey? The sound's really good, actually. Yeah, it sounds good. And thank you for putting headphones in. That makes a very big difference. That's my guest today, author, political activist, journalist and founding leader of the Women's Equality Party, Sophie Walker. My favourite activism fact is that there's an American anti-circumcision activist called Richard Angel, who used to go by the nickname Dick Angel. As long as you don't, you discount the 250 boxes in the stables. <laughs> in the stables? Listen to you, it's like Downton Abbey. It's a very dilapidated Downton Abbey. As the leader of the party, Sophie oversaw a manifesto with six core objectives. Equal representation in politics and business, equal representation in education, equal pay, equal treatment of women in the media, equal parenting rights, and an end to violence against women. Just 10 months into her second five-year term, Sophie stepped down from the party. She went on to say, I think that sometimes in order to lead, you have to get out of the way. Sophie's book, Grace Under Pressure, Going the Distance as an Asperger's Mum, chronicled the day-to-day life of raising her daughter Grace alongside training for a marathon. 
Her subsequent book, Five Rules for Rebellion, Let's Change the World Ourselves, presents an inspiring five-step journey to incorporating activism into our lives. Sophie and I talked about imposter syndrome, running, single parenting, feminism, optimism, ageism, professionalism, cynicism, presenteeism, autism, and some things that don't end in ism. I started by asking her about suddenly finding herself a public figure as the newly elected leader of the Women's Equality Party. Yeah, I struggled with that. I struggled with being public. I struggled with understanding to what extent I was public. I struggled with understanding to what extent I was allowed to be really me and public. Uh, it felt like there was a lot of um, there's a lot of pressure on public figures um, to be in inverted commas authentic, which is a word I really detest. Why do you detest that? Why do you detest the word authentic? Oh, because it's become an ad man's word. There's nothing mm. authentic about the word authentic. <laughs> it's it's a shorthand. It's a shorthand for um, meaningful glances. Yeah. Uh, and um, and uh, from the heart, sound bites. So a kind of fake real self is what it's come to well, mean. The opposite of what it actually originally should mean, which is actually really having your because you did you did need to I think anyone involved in the Women's Equality Party um when it was founded you know six years ago or nearly six years ago or now you kind of do need to have the courage to have your own voice right I mean it wasn't yours wasn't necessarily a welcome voice in the political landscape of the time no I think um I think well yes I know actually I think there were a lot of joy and and, and optimism when we launched. Um, we were really catching a wave of um, uh, sort of joyful frustration, really, if that doesn't sound too Mary Poppins. Um, <laughs> there was a lot, I think it was a time when people had really, um, uh, women in particular, really felt that we needed to sort of do something, capital D, capital S, um, about uh, the lack of women's representation, um, the lack of policy making for women. Um, I mean, you know, there have been thousands and thousands of fantastic women doing grassroots work for decades on this. Um, and it is, as we know, often the job particularly of women from minoritized communities. So black women, disabled women, um, uh, lesbian and gay women to step into the spaces that are left by failed policymaking and, you know, devise uh, uh, solutions and um, support for and by themselves. Right. So, um, you know, this, this is there's always been that work. There's always been that work, um, and it's always been absolutely essential to supporting women's particular needs. I think what we did is what happened at the beginning of the Women's Equality Party was that we we captured a more sort of um, top line <laughs> understanding that like that we needed to have a a voice and that it was um, a political voice. It was an I think what was so exciting about it was that it was an unapologetic politically feminist voice that said you know feminism is a political ideology in and of itself and it deserves its own space um, in the political atmosphere rather than something that gets co-opted by other parties when they try to remember to sort of do something for female voters um, and and yes I did you know I, I I think I didn't know what I didn't know and it was it was a it was an ongoing process of coming to grips with that and also I think the push-pull of 
you know, as a politician, you're expected to be, uh, you, you know, you lead. There's a certain amount of frankness and honesty that you have to bring to that job if you're going to be, I think, any good at it. And you were very much an amateur politician, as you described yourself, because everybody, for anyone who doesn't know, the Women's Equality was founded um, before the May 2015 general election by Sandy Tuxwig and Catherine Mayer. And Sandy sort of famously said, I've made jokes over and over again about politics this election. I've had enough. Um, and you didn't really mean to, you didn't go in thinking I'll lead this party, did you? You got involved and then quickly became leader. Is that right? Yeah, I got involved. I mean, I went along to put the chairs out at the, at the <laughs> meetings. I went along as somebody who had been um, dynamised into uh, activism by um, my daughter's diagnosis of um, autism. I'd been a reporter for about 20 years for um, an international news agency. And I had, during that time, you know, um, worked in often a very male atmosphere um, often feeling quite uncomfortable as a woman in that atmosphere, often feeling not good enough, you know, that imposter syndrome that lots of women talk about, or, or pushing it away, um, having a child, trying to juggle work and children uh, in a way that I didn't really see my male colleagues struggle with to the same extent. And then discovering that my daughter, um, uh, you know, my daughter was having a really bad time. It took us five years to get a diagnosis. At that point, I was a single parent. Um, I was, you know, trying to pay the rent, keep my job um, and, you know, leave work early pretty much every day to go and pick up my daughter who'd been excluded again for what was essentially bullying against her. So when, you know, that election came around in 2015, I was I was really pissed off. You know, I was like, where is an understanding of the specific experiences of women? Where is the understanding that we don't care about care because women do it where is the understanding of the multiple intersecting experiences of women from all sorts of different communities who experience discrimination in more than one form it just felt that politics had got so oh god so limited so so when Catherine said um she was setting this party up I was like right I'm in what do you need um and I went along to the first couple of meetings and um, I think I spoke at, at one of them um, it was like someone invited me to come and talk about um, care and I really just felt like oh yes this is a space where we can really do some serious work. Do you think we get driven to um, I guess when people think about being an activist um, a political activist people think maybe that's something that it is something we it's sort of like not a vocation but something that's kind of in our blood but actually lots of us become activists because we reach breaking point right with the way things are and you and I have in common that we have um yeah autistic kids kids with Asperger's and fighting that fight without getting heard and the sort of discrimination there seems to be against people who need help whether they're the carers of the kids who need the help or the yeah. kids themselves my son also it was about a three-year process to get him diagnosed um and was it that kind of despair that drove you to activism rather than you always thinking of yourself as an activist yeah absolutely and you know um when I was writing my book about this it was really interesting interviewing other campaigners who nearly always said I don't consider myself an activist because it's you know <laughs> I think there's quite a male idea around activism of people who sort of abseil uh, into onto green 
onto oil tankers for Greenpeace, you know, or sort of sit in a treehouse to stop a an extension for three years, or you know, there's a sort of slightly... climb up Everest in uh, tweed plus fours and then go on the public speaking services about it. <laughs> I don't know, but I, you know, there's a slightly sort of macho element to and uh, 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 some understandings of activism, and and, they, and and the women I spoke to almost to a woman said. I'm just doing this because it needs to be done, you know, and I was driven to it from, oh, yeah, often from despair or anger or actually that moment where you realise nobody's coming to the rescue and you're, you're really going to have to do this yourself. And that, that was very much what propelled me into WEP. I had had absolutely no intention of ever being a politician at all. Um, and when, um, you know, I was asked to lead the party, um, yeah, I spent... I spent I spent quite a while thinking about it and um, and talking to my husband about it and figuring out whether this was something that we we could manage as a family and I you know I really think you know we only managed it because my my husband is um, a to, you know a total superstar and uh, you know a soulmate and a feminist and you know he basically said you know I've got this I've got the rest of it you do it so I was able to campaign for hours and hours and hours and hours and all day, every day and weekends and evenings and, and know that there was, you know, he was, <laughs> he was like cooking the tea every night and doing the kids homework with them. And, you know, it was a wrench for me so, so often in those years to be away from my children for the extent that I was, and particularly, you know, having an autistic child who really needs um, certainty and structure and routines and this is Grace, right? This is, so this is your firstborn. So Grace, who is now, what, in her late teens? She's 19, yes. 19. Now, and, and an art student. Um, Amazing. And I see, I see your updates on social media, and I know you've described her as seeing being um, autistic as a superpower now, and I want to hear more about that, because um, I think for my son, it's been a bit of a mixed blessing, particularly during the pandemic. But you wrote, um, you wrote Grace Under Pressure, right? You wrote, um, a, which was a blog that then turned into a, book and um and it was also about you running a marathon right so this was about the day-to-day -day life of raising grace raising a kid newly diagnosed with asperger's syndrome and running a marathon so lots of people might say well kind of yeah that makes your life it sounds like a sort of double difficulty but actually it was your salvation right sort of deciding to reinvest in your fitness your well-being what, what happened with that because that's a bit of a pincer movement of challenge one might think yeah, I can see why it might look a bit crazy from the outside. Um, but it was very simple, really. The only thing that helped me, that I considered helped me and Grace at that point, was the National Autistic Society's helpline. Um, you know, I, I ran that it. that speed dial still. It's an important yeah. resource. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, uh, and I wanted to make sure that that helpline kept going. And I thought that, you know, I... I'll run a marathon, I'll raise, I'll raise money so that that helpline keeps going for, for people like me and Grace who really need it. And, and also, I was really unwell. I was diagnosed with clinical depression. My daughter was very low. Um, and I, I felt like I needed to um, get physically strong for both of us. Otherwise, something was going to give. So it was a mixture of the sort of practical and physical and spiritual as well, if I'm honest, you know, I really needed to shore both of us up with the resource that was um, 
the, the, the kind of resources that, that, that were achieved by doing those things. So you're training for a marathon, which I know having run marathons as well as, you know, at four hour training runs on occasion, you're raising a, raising a daughter with Asperger's syndrome. You've stopped being a single mum by then, right? So you um, yeah. at some point met your amazing feminist husband who um, was kind of part of the engine room of you, your political career um, and had another daughter with him. And, and he's got two sons, is that right? So you've got four kids in the family. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, when you're thinking about sort of reclaiming yourself, one of the things that um, I think is interesting for people who are as driven as you are is, I guess, where does the kind of play come in? Where does the fun come in? Where do you ever give yourself a little bit of slack and say, <laughs> do you know what, I'm just going to do this for the fuck it. I just feel like doing this. It did, did that bit get a bit buried, do you think, at that time? Yeah, yeah. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, because everything you were doing was for a purpose, right? Even resigning, yeah. I, I just, I looked at your um, resignation sort of statement when you left the uh, Women's Equality Party, which was quite early into your second five-year term, right? So you could have kept doing it for five years. And what you described it as, which I thought was really lovely, and you sort of jokingly said, I hope the white men out there are listening. Um, or maybe you didn't say white men, I hope men out there are listening. But you said it was less stepping down, it was more sitting down, inviting others to join you at the table. And I just want to read one bit from your statement, which I found really moving at the time, and I found it moving when I read it again. Um, you said, I offer my hand and my help to women who may never have considered that they could change the world because we need new leaders and the leaders who will change the world will be the women we haven't met yet. And I thought that was um, such an unusual way for a leader to lead by getting out of the way. So what happened at that point when you made that decision and, and you wrote those amazing words? Well, um, I had always been very aware of my privilege in becoming the leader of the Women's Equality Party in that I was initially asked to do it because we didn't have the structure to have a formal um, uh, election process. You know, at that point, we were still a, a bunch of women around a, around a couple of kitchen tables. Um, and I think I was asked to do it because I would be sort of the one at the end of the meetings who'd be like, right, but what are we actually going to do? Um, <laughs> the journalist in you trying to bring points, it home. <laughs> action points, yeah. Um, so I went into the leadership knowing that I basically had been in the right place at the right time, essentially. And, um, and as I learned more about feminism um, and, um, you know, the work that so many of in the sisterhood had been doing for so, so long, um, uh, I, I, I also began to understand that, you know, as a, as a white middle-class woman, um, uh, there were experiences that I could only speak about, you know, academically, really, you know, you can, you can offer so much support and solidarity, but representation really matters. It really, really matters. And, and I think, um, you know, we don't have, we don't have enough white middle-class women in politics. We certainly don't have enough black women or disabled women or women from the LGBTQ plus community in politics. We don't, have enough women from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. You know, I just felt like, I really felt like it was time for me to make space for women with, with different voices. And I felt like, um, and, and also, um, 
I was running out of steam. I was, I was very, very um, tired. You know, as you pointed out earlier, I had not had much time for play. Um, I had been driven by a sense of purpose that was verging on something that was slightly damaging, actually. Um, was it I'm a kind not... of obsessive? Because if you look at your career, it's, it's, I talk about this a lot when I do my kind of public speaking, the gap between the self that you convey, which is real, um, into, I'm loath to use the word authentic, but the, the real you that is the you that's hugely high achieving, it might really be you, but the gap between that and another part of you, which is the part of you that's more childlike, more vulnerable, more needs to play, the gap can be really big, even though you're really being yourself, the voice you yeah. had in the Women's Equality Party really seemed to be your voice. But I guess if you're budging out room for the bit that doesn't have to be strong, that doesn't, then, then that's where you start to pay a price on the inside, right? The gap between how you're feeling and what you're doing. If it gets big enough, something has to give. Yeah, I, that's beautifully put. I, I, that's really beautifully put. I, and I, I think that, you know, the period, the period during which we were doing WEP as well, the political landscape changed massively. Mm. I mean, just massively. The strong, the, the strong man syndrome started yeah. to happen, didn't it, unfortunately? Yeah. yeah, so we, I mean, that doesn't, you know, that makes, that makes it, uh, you know, a feminist politics even more necessary rather than less. But in terms of leading the party through those, Four and a bit years. It was um, uh, it was a real roller coaster, and we we started off with that that sense of joy and optimism. And you know, the sort of ten months after we'd opened for membership, I was running for mayor of London, which was an absolute blast. And then um, and you then had your first conference in 2016 in Manchester. I was at that, yeah. and it was just it felt like it felt like you were you were Beyonce uh, on the night. <laughs> I, I did I did some of the comedy afterwards with Sandy and Sarah Pascoe, and it just felt like it was such a time of optimism it, it came was, sort yeah. of not too many years after we'd had the london olympics and everything felt yeah. full of hope and unity and, yeah. and anything was possible and it's incredibly depressing even for those of us not directly involved in politics i guess we're all involved in politics or we should be but i mean democracy is kind of on the wane unbelievably and we've gone so far to the right and so far away from those things so even to those of us who weren't on the heart of the inside of it the thought that at the time you were looking for sort of equal representation, equal pay, basic, really things. basic. Well, that was that was the thing that was so tough, you know. I so Brexit happened, the country splintered along whole new political fault lines on top of the ones already existing. Um, uh, there was, you know, Trump was elected. There was a, a sort of growing acceptance, really, of you know misogyny and sexism. It was, in fact, it was more than acceptance. They were being put forward as a valid thing to vote for and you know and and align yourself with and i um and i would be going to do i'd be increasingly invited along to do debates in inverted commas about women's equality and um all aspects of women's equality where i would be put up against a misogynist in a nice suit and you know and we'd have at it and you know it was really, it was really a very tough thing to do. Um, you cut, you step off, you step off the, out of the studio, and your phone lights up with abusive messages, um, and um, and I just, and it was a real, it was very difficult to decide um, that we would do that stuff. We had to get out in front of, we had to get out in front of the of the audience. You know, we were a small party. We were 
you know, there are barriers to, to small parties in this country. You don't get seen and heard so much and you don't, you know, there's a sort of real acceptance essentially in the media that this is a two party system. And, and so I felt like I had to get out there at every opportunity that was offered, even when those felt really very stressful and, and often um, the personal impact stayed with me for days afterwards. And I, I think, um, you know, so that combined with a growing sense that we, 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 we really needed to fast forward feminism a bit and get, you know, make more space for, for women from minoritized communities to be seen and heard in, in a way that's supportive, right? Not just sort of you go out there and, and let them have at you now. It was, it was what I was trying to say was when I stepped out of the way was like, we, does this, we, we've really got to, Const- to nourish your leaders, right? You have to find yeah. a way once they're there. Because it did strike me that it's very easy to take the leader of a party. And, you know, we're, I'm not beyond having a pop at Boris Johnson, so I can't say I don't have a pop at the leader of parties as well. But it seemed very personal on quite a an extreme level, what happened to you and the sort of trolling you got and the abuse that you were getting in every sort of aspect. It seemed to be hating on you as it hating on you for speaking out I, I remember that time, i'm sure you you read about it the um the elephant in the valley study which was a study of women in tech in silicon valley and 84 percent of those women had been called aggressive uh, yeah. during their careers as negative feedback and no men had had that adjective applied yeah. to them and there's almost this implication that if you speak out as, as a woman who believes in things you're there to be slapped down again which it does seem to still be a relic of something quite patriarchal because i, I don't think men are getting slapped down for speaking out they might get slapped down for speaking out in a way we don't appreciate but do you how much of that do you think is about gender and how much of that felt very personal all of it Mm, yeah (laughs) um I think you know I've lost count of the number of times that um I've been called a man hater um either from you know anonymous accounts with a union jack in their bio Mm. or from or from those who are um, still on the path to learning and understanding what it means to be an ally to feminism. Namaste, motherfuckers. If you had to define feminism in a sentence, how would you define it? It's freedom. It's freedom. It's, you know, it's liberation. It's women's liberation. I wish we'd called ourselves the Women's Liberation Party. You know, I think, I think that that, what is you know i i know what i'm what we mean by women's equality but i think that um i think that there is an essential lack of freedom for women that i really want to talk about more and point to more uh you know we make choices in a context and the context for women is oh it's bruising them and hurting them and making them small and pushing them into poverty uh wounding them and um there's still a need to diminish to yeah to diminish women i think um and when we look at yeah what might actually enlarge the experience of being a woman and, and i think there is this misconception that if we talk about feminism and we push for that freedom for women that we're saying we want to bring men down in order for that to be the case but what we're trying to do is bring women up um it's not about bringing men down and in fact you know male allies are enormously important what would you say then is um if you want to be a feminist ally um whatever your demographic is what, what would you say is the most important thing anyone can do anyone who's listening can do well i think it does matter what your demographic is in terms of what 
what your allyship looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a white middle class non disabled woman, um, and um, what I'm trying to do is um, point out all the ways in which all women from different experiences, um, from different backgrounds, have different experiences, and how we need to respond to those in specific and different ways. Um, I think, you know, what I've always said to men and will always say to men is, um, you know, we need your we need your help and we need your voices, but we also need you to understand how to give space to our voices and how to understand that you do benefit daily from structures that were set up by white men largely, for other white men largely. Um, and getting aggressive and defensive about that um, doesn't it doesn't help, you know, the sort of hashtag not all men. We all of us, to some extent, as as white middle class people, live with privilege from existing within systems that benefit white people and non-disabled people and uh, you know people from upper from that from 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 the higher socioeconomic classes. And it's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable. Like I've I've had my ass kicked so many times. <laughs> I had to learn humility. I had to like learn to go away and just. Take it all in and, and, you know, and consider my bruises and think, okay, so maybe I asked for that. (laughs) That could be your next book, Consider My Bruises. Um, Because, I mean, you're not, it is, it's obviously, you can see why play anyway with anyone who achieves what you've achieved career-wise by play and fun and that kind of guard down self gets a little bit pushed to the side, but particularly when you're dealing in this kind of area, which is such a, important it's not a funny topic you know the the way in which women violence against women and girls is not a funny topic and to campaign for that to stop is not a funny business but in your book um your book which I should give the full title give it a good plug so five rules for rebellion let's change the world ourselves which came out in paperback earlier this month and by the way I should say that your side hustles are bigger than most people's hustles you do sort of things quietly on the side and I'm like oh if I manage that in a 10 year span I'd be quite happy with that but your your, um, your, th- this was really to um, to look at kind of activism, full stop, and also activism for women, I guess. And it started with three kind of rules, didn't it? Despair, anger, and hope. And then you expanded them out into compassion and perseverance. It kind of reminded me when I read it about those um, the cycle of grief, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, ah. acceptance. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was <laughs> so I wondered. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm not saying you've plagiarized the cycle of grief but if you look at that and where you get your energy for that so we're looking at you know um those five elements you talk about in your book so so how can you do that and still live a life where you allow yourself to be the person you are to be frivolous to to be spiritual to kind of save yourself how do the two coexist that's such a good question i i when i left web um i was very clear that i wanted to set up um uh, some form of practical support for um, uh, women to run for political office, um, particularly for women from minoritized communities to run for political office. And so um, uh, with some uh, friends I set up, um, we went about creating Activate, which um, gives um, money, you know, it's, it takes money, <laughs> it takes finances, cover the childcare, the petrol, you know, all the things that women struggle with when they're, um, and and then, but but I was also really conscious that there was a philosophical element to activism and to campaigning. Um, I I took a, a, a quite a you know I took a 
several months of um, really not doing very much, which I think was, I'm not sure I'd ever done that really before. I sort of lay on the sofa with the curtains drawn and watched every episode of The Good Wife. You talked about being depressed in your 30s when Grace was diagnosed. Do you think you were depressed again because that not wanting to get out of bed and wanting to shut the curtains and fade away is, is obviously in keeping with, with depression, right? Yeah, I think I was, but I think it was, it was a different kind. It was, um, I mean, this sounds terribly dramatic, but it felt like my, oh God, it felt like my soul was burned out, right? There was something at the, really at the core of me that was a very small, sad looking little cinder. And I needed to sort of find the fire again. And, um, I, uh, and I kept thinking, how do you do this? How does one do this and not end up like this? How does one do this and, and keep going? And I, and I under, that was, you know, I was doing a lot of reading as well and a, and a lot of nourishing, you know, I it didn't, you have to put in in order to, to, to have something to create. And I think it had been a while since I'd been able just to really absorb other thoughts and ideas and rest and, and do that kind of I mean it's awful furlough's got such a terrible association now doesn't it but it it, it it you know in the oldest sense of the world it was like giving myself some fallow time to mm-hmm. to 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 nourish the soil a bit so anyway that's where the book came out of I suddenly realized that it wasn't a series of pitched battles it was a philosophy for life and that it was cyclical and if I could work out how to continually you know defeat despair channel the anger understand that hope is a is a is a very powerful tool be able to collaborate with compassion and get the right mixture between empathy and um uh you know not getting lost in sort of slightly therapeutic approaches um and you know and persevering i I just felt like if if there's something i can usefully do here maybe i can maybe I can offer some support to other people who might be feeling outfaced by this. I think it's a real Sophie Walker move in a time when you're thinking, I'm just going to let myself do nothing to then do something that's, <laughs> that is quite something um, and manage to produce, uh, you know, a, a book that's so important because activism isn't therapy, um, is it? And people, I think, sometimes mistake um, the need to sort of, we need to express where we're at with things, but at, crucially, what do we actually do and what do we each individually do? But if you're so... So even that time of kind of collapse um, with the curtain shut and and all that you went through when Grace was diagnosed, you still you're still driven. And people say, don't they? If you're so driven, what are you driving out? Um, I'm sure you've yeah. heard that. I get asked that. What, what do you think the answer is? Um, is I've been doing a lot of um, well, I've been doing a lot of work on myself actually over the last couple of years, um, and I think I. Uh, I, I, I have very little self-authority. I think it's something, I mean, I know that sounds like a slightly bonkers thing to say from someone who sort of regularly goes out, crosses the street for a fight. <laughs> um, uh, this is, that's what Anne, my, Anne Oliverius, who I am now working with, who's this brilliant feminist lawyer, um, says, you know, I'll always cross the street for a good fight. And oh my God, I love her for it. Um, and so, but I think I can see why that sounds a bit, a bit of a strange thing to say, but I think I, um, I absorbed everything that ev- everybody said about me. I, 
was simultaneously, I was trying to be all things to all people. And there was an element, I think, of sort of martyrdom about it. Um, uh, and I, um, and I, and I think that's what was, that, that was what in the end became damaging. I, I felt like I, I had to, I had to be, I had to be the thing that, I had to be the thing, the person, the feminist, the leader, the advisor, the mother, the sister, the daughter, the wife. I had to just like, I had to be it in all of it um, because I hadn't understood that I was already enough. I, I, you know, I know this is where we do really do get into sort of namaste motherfuckers, but um, <laughs> in spending some time on myself and doing some therapy and some, you know, trying to establish a meditation practice, I, it really helped me to understand that um, I, one is, one is enough, right? Life is a, life is a, a long if you're lucky, uh, experience of, of learning and um, appreciation of what's around you. But um, Are you, it's, it's a sense of yourself somehow that I didn't have before. It's that sense of resilience, isn't it? It's funny how, and again, I don't want to project my own uh, shit onto you, but I think you've got boundaries. Um, <laughs> but I think, but if we think about being, you know, whatever a strong woman is or a strong person in the world, it's funny how the more I used to, and, you know, when I was kind of in the heady sort of boardroom days of my career, and the more I used to really try and convey this bulletproof, resilient exterior, the less I actually felt like that on the inside. And it was actually meditate. When I, I did a course after I'd suffered from depression, I did this, um, there was a particular mindfulness course that is a kind of eight or nine week course and it's it's rolled out all around the world. It's a kind of mindfulness for people who've suffered depression. It's got a catchier title than that. And, they'd, and you'd have to practice mindfulness for an hour a day. And I would sit and do my wow. mindfulness and just and just cry to begin with because everything came in that I'd been driving out all those busy years. And it was almost like a PTSD reaction. I also had also to my son's diagnosis after all those years coping as a single mum. And you do just have to cope. People say, you're brilliant coping. It's like, what else am I going to do? Yeah, exactly. How, <laughs> how are you doing it? And like, well, don't have a choice, actually. <laughs> yeah, there's a child that needs raising and there's money that needs earning. But it's interesting. And you, you talk about this in your um, in your despair. You say, looking closely into your despair, you'll discover your way out of it. I say your despair, I mean, in your book, I'm um, in the mm. five rules book. But it's funny how sitting with the stuff that's so difficult actually sort of takes away some of its negative power because you think, yeah. actually, I can just accommodate this. And I I know we're getting into real caftan wearing territory here, but <laughs> I can sit with this stuff and it isn't going to derail me and it isn't going to destroy me. But it has that. You've still got, we should say that you've got, I mean, a massive job again. You're chief strategy officer for a, um, a, a multinational law firm um, specializing in violence against women and young young girls. So it's not a it's not a light job you've got now. You've gone for another top level big job with with big bold important aims so where is is there through all this stuff you're doing you know meditation therapy stopping looking absorbing what have you found underneath all of that then what, who's sophie walker now um oh my goodness like could this yeah <laughs> it's just <been> like, <laughs> you know what i've I still feel inherently uncomfortable about talking of myself at such length. I mean, that question makes me go, oh, God. Can we talk well, about because you think it's self-centered to want to talk about who you actually are as opposed to what you do in the world? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's still think, about, unless it's got a purpose, why are you saying it? Is there still that feeling? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, to, uh, it has been really interesting to me that I, 
when I, I started doing meditation and I was listening to some sort of guided stuff and <laughs> I mean I can laugh about it now but at the time I think the first time I had somebody in a voice in my head say repeat after me I am love I was like what are you joking like that this <laughs> voice was so opposite to anything that the voice in my head you know I am I am love and I am good and I am connected to the universe like the voice in my head for so many years had been I am a bit shit I am not good enough I am I need to try harder I and so I think where I've got to now is um, I am trying to be useful uh, and I uh, I'm also um, spending a lot more time uh, trying not to trying precisely not to worry so much about uh, whether that you know the extent of that usefulness or you know I'm I'm you know I'm just doing the stuff that's in front of me that seems to be helpful. Um, I am working for McAllister Rotherberries because I think they are a superb firm. I think there is um, uh, an essential activism in the way that they approach their cases. Um, they are trying to build a better world by making the law work better for everyone. If I can be, a, you know, a part of that, um, then, you know, I consider that I'm, I'm doing a decent job. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the to, to who they are and the sort of work they're doing for people who are interested to hear more about that and what they might also be able to do to help um, in putting an end to violence against women and young girls. I just want to ask about an age thing. You're just behind me in age. I think, am I allowed to say it's your 50th this year, I believe? Yes, is that right? Is. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. Maybe just out of lockdown as well, you might be able to actually have a bit of a 50th. Maybe not full on licking people at an orgy, but something <laughs> fun. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I had hoped that I might turn 50 um, in Ibiza, but I think I'm going to celebrate turning 50 by getting a bit further up the vaccination list instead. Yeah, it's really worth getting into that age group. Um, yeah, just, yeah, just to get, I've just been vaccinated as someone a bit older than you, who's also asthmatic. I'd really recommend having a respiratory problem at okay. a great age uh, if you really want to get helped. Um, do you think there's, um, th this is, I'm going to say something that is uh, potentially controversial now, but being a woman in your 40s, so it sounds as if you had a pretty challenging decade. I certainly had a real life-changingly challenging decade. Mm. And a lot goes on with women in their 40s socially, um, hormonally stuff that yeah. uh, people talk a lot about the menopause which obviously happens more likely in your early 50s but actually I think all that shit kicks off big style in your 40s I don't know many women in their 40s who haven't gone a little bit um, you know off beam uh, in, in in ways that were slightly beyond their control um, do you think do you <laughs> yes. think what do you what do you think about your experience as a woman in her 40s do you think that's been relevant to all, all the all the stuff you've had to do, the work on yourself and the, the changes you've made. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's a, I'm trying to give you a detailed. What I'm saying is, did you go batshit crazy yeah. because you were in your 40s? I'm trying to give you a detailed and interesting answer, but the short answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. that's that's fine. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think I did a, you know, I, it feels like I, I lived about 30 years in a decade. I mm. feel like I did some of the toughest work I've ever done. I did some of the biggest steepest learning I've ever done um I did some fairly essential um work on myself that was long overdue uh yeah it's been it's 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 been a hell of a decade 
Yeah, I think when people say it's a roller coaster, that's something of a cliched understatement. If it's any consolation, Sophie, I can highly recommend the view uh, once you get a five at the start of your age. I felt so brilliant um, the day <laughs> the day I turned fifty and the day after my kids threw a sort of surprise party for me and nothing grand, but it I felt so relieved. I can't explain mm. it more than that. And um, yeah, I felt I feel as if I've become less invisible since I turned fifty. So mm. I hope that you benefit from uh, a similar decade to come. Namaste. What would you pick as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment? That I think that moment actually when I, that voice in my head said I am love and I was like, oh wow, that is so completely different to the voice I've been carrying around in my head for the last <laughs> most of my life. Um, I think it really shocked me and I think that there are probably quite a lot of women who walk around thinking I'm a bit shit in either this way or that way or the other way and um, I would say you know from me to them this is me saying you are love too this is our hippie moment you are love you are enough you are yourself and you are connected to the universe and you're fucking brilliant so don't listen to that voice it's funny that we both have seen the need to slightly self-deprecate, haven't we? And we can't quite just say it still. So we've learned that that is a thing. When I did the, the Hoffman process, which I've talked about on the podcast before, um, there's one bit which may sound weird to people who haven't done it, but um, where your sort of individual kind of teacher leader through the thing um and and he in my case it was a he and he, and they do this to everyone it wasn't just me or it would have been weird and he looked at me and he said i see you and i love you and i lost my shit i cried, <laughs> I cried for about an hour I and a half bet, I and bet. i don't think and and the, it was the combination the fact that someone might actually see me as i actually am mm. and they might still love me was blew yeah. my mind so that's a really yeah. so that's a lovely thing and it's just maybe one day we'll be able to say these things without going um without apologizing yes <laughs> saying them and having yes. fat, seen the light yes. um so to give us a chance to be uh yeah, irreverent and silly again a uh, favorite joke what's your favorite joke sophie i remember telling this joke to my mom and she laughed and laughed and laughed when i was little and now that i'm her age i it makes me laugh and laugh and laugh and i completely get it now um uh, a woman goes to the doctor and says i think i'm losing my memory and the doctor says when did this begin to happen? And the woman says, mm, when did what begin to happen? <laughs> I um... <laughs> there you go, there's a menopause joke for you. I almost don't think it's funny because it's too close to home. So I've got, <laughs> I've got well beyond the what did I come upstairs for point. I literally, someone said to me the other day that they'd forgotten what their address was. They'd been filling in a form and they were set, and I was thinking, oh no, that's, I, that, I literally am almost at the point sometimes where, where my full name, I'm like, wait, what's my middle name? Um, and obviously days of the week are long gone, uh, partly lockdown, partly menopause. Yeah, that's a good... <laughs> <laughs> that's a good joke uh, what was the joke no uh, so <laughs> what joke sorry what who are you what are doing here <laughs> yeah why are we here uh, that is a good existential question um so talking of existential uh, last question if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening what would it be ah uh, well we are well i would go to the first rule i think given where we are um given what <laughs> how we've been living for the last year um, I would say don't, don't be defeated by despair. The fact that you're despairing at all means that actually you do want more. And, and that is the, 
that's the light and that's the hope so follow that the only way out of the shit is through it. I think someone said that to me a, a long while ago, and it's a helpful thing. We'll put a link to the book, Sophie, in the show notes for anyone who'd like to read it. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely having you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. That was the inspirational Sophie Walker. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to try. I am a runner, but I'm not one of those blindly determined, breathing all over people during a pandemic kind of a runner. I'm more the kind who accidentally buys running trainers two sizes too big, goes running, falls over their own feet, cracks two ribs, and has a black eye that four weeks later still makes me look like Ziggy Stardust. Anyone who follows me on social media will know that is not a word of a lie. But I really like the idea of running not for distance or pace, but because I am enough. So this week, I'm going to try taking a more mindful approach to my running. I'm going to try not falling over. And I'm also going to read a book I can't believe I haven't read yet, which is What I Talk About When I Talk About Running by Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami. Oh, and a shout out to my daughter who has just completed the Couch to 5K. There's no danger of her ever listening to this podcast, but I am still very proud. So that's the show for this week. Thanks to Sophie for joining me. You can find links to her website and social media and all the other good stuff in the show notes. Namaste, motherfuckers, was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and was produced by Mike Hansen and Karu Shadami for Pod People Productions. Music by Jake Yap. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show, not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, but because it helps other people find the show. We'll be back in your feed next Monday when I'll be talking to much-loved comedian, actor, writer and now children's author, Rosie Jones. My lightful moment of... For six years, I thought I can't be on camera because of how I speak. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, mother.